This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. We're getting to this place where people are reconsidering their relationship with alcohol in general. I think as with all things, we've become a very proactive society and I love that. We're getting past this idea of we have to wait until things go off the rails before we make a change. We can just make a change. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 517 with guest Jean McCarthy. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. And today we're doing a book giveaway. I wanted to say that right off the bat for those of you who like to skip the intro. And I'm going to tell you how you can win a copy of our guest's brand new book. Jean McCarthy is here, and her new book is called Take Good Care. And just a second, but I wanted to do one last announcement about the Daring Way group, online group program. And if you're listening to this in real time, then registration is is um, still open just for a few more days. So head on over to andreaowen.com slash group to grab your spot. And again, very limited seating in there, only 14 people. So get it while you can. And today's guest is someone who's been on the show before, but many years ago, many, many moons ago, I believe around 2016, I did a recovery series and Jean was one of the guests. And I, I won't get into too much how I know her because we we briefly talk about it during the show, but Jean, Jean's an OG. She's an OG in the recovery world. And I love that this book just isn't about drinking. Although for her, that was kind of the last symptom. <laughs> but we do talk about the ways that we run away from our issues, sometimes just running away from life. That's how I like to describe my own discomfort and the reason really why I was over drinking. And this marks the last episode as we're talking about uh, recovery. I feel like I say the word episode like a Canadian. Um, I don't know. Maybe I don't. Maybe it, maybe it's just me and my own little self-consciousness about how I pronounce certain words. But anyway, how do you want a copy of Jean's book? So if you go over to her Instagram, it's in the uh, show description, but it's also Jean McCarthy underscore writes. And look for her post uh, where she talks about being on my show. And there's going to be a simple question in there and you just leave a comment. She's going to randomly pick a winner and send someone a free copy of her book, which is called Take Good Care. I love Jean. I've loved her for a long time. Um, I think she's great people and I hope that you enjoy this show as much as I enjoyed interviewing her on it. But for those of you who are brand new to her, let me tell you a little bit about her. 
Jean McCarthy is an award-winning author, blogger, and podcaster who is best known as a voice of recovery advocacy. Her blog, Unpickled, began in 2011 and has continued to chronicle Jean's alcohol-free lifestyle since her first day of sobriety. Thousands of readers credit Unpickled as a motivating factor in their decision to quit drinking. Jean is the author of five books about recovery, including her latest, Take Good Care, Recovery Readings Inspired by the Bubble Hour podcast. And without further ado, here is Jean. Jean, welcome back to the show. Hi, Andrea. It's so nice to hear you again. I am excited to have you here. I think it's been five or six years since you were here because you were on our recovery series way back when. And I'm going to pop that link in the show notes because it was such a great episode hearing your story of sobriety. And we're going to talk today about one of your books that has just recently come out. But also, I'm pretty sure you and I are on the same page that everybody's recovering from something. Am I right? Definitely. Whether they know it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, but before I dive into the, to the, the meat of, of this book and ask you some questions around it, which I, I so love. And, and again, we will, we will sort of translate this to people who even, who don't struggle with alcohol. I wanted to ask you, you know, as someone who's been sober for a long time, and I think the the majority of us who are in recovery understand that the drinking was just a symptom of, of a larger problem. I'm curious for you, when you think about that, what do you think the drinking for you was trying to solve or like numb out and go away. Do you, can you kind of, I know it sometimes is a big answer, but can you, can you talk about that? For me in a word, I think it was inauthenticity. Mm. I think I was, I just felt so misaligned that I knew I was kind of being myself in the way I was sort of play acting my way through a successful life as an adult and a wife and a mother and a business owner and wearing all the hats and doing all the things. But I still felt like I wasn't really being myself, that there was a part of me that I always had to keep kind of hidden and secret because it seemed weak. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that game face that I put on for work or that I put on for the world just started to weigh 9,000 pounds. And I felt like I described it, you know, in the early days in my blog, back in the blogging days, I wrote um, Unpickled. And the way I described it in the early days there was that I felt like I was wearing a suit of armor, but the real me was like shriveled up like a raisin inside. You know how you get, Mm -hmm. how your fingers get shriveled when you're too long inside something hot and sweaty. And that, you know, the world expected this tough exterior version of me that I showed them, but I I was really this shriveled up person inside. And at one point after about a year, within the first year of quitting drinking, I I was seeing a therapist and I said to her, I need you to help me kill this persona I've created for myself. (laughs) I feel jailed by this image that I've created for myself. And and, uh, she, thank goodness, said, oh, no, no, we're we're not killing anybody here. (laughs) She said, she taught me the uh, concept of the parts of self. Okay. And that really, I had kind of gotten stuck in one part. Mm-hmm. And that healing recovery for me has been about really getting grounded in my highest self or my most authentic self, and then inviting all those other parts to sort of be used as tools, but not to get stuck in them. So mm-hmm. inauthenticity and discomfort of that. The inauthenticity and the discomfort of that. I, I love that. And can you can you say a little bit more about about what did 
what did authentic look like for you? Because I think it's a word that gets used a lot and, and many people say it's their value, but it can look different for any everyone. So what, give us some like everyday examples of, of what you wanted more of and, and what you worked towards as being a more authentic person or, or authentic version of yourself, I should say. Well, I think it started with admitting things about myself to myself that I didn't like. Like, I think this happens as we become really engaged in any kind of dysfunction or coping mechanism is that we become, I think, more and more distanced from ourselves. And so first I had to sort of accept to myself that the reason I felt like I was putting on this mask in the first place was that sometimes I get confused. Sometimes I forget things. Sometimes I'm, okay, wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) about things. And I just never felt like I could show any of that, that all of the rewards and the success I'd had in life were because I felt like because I was hiding those parts of myself. And I became over-invested in kind of overcompensating for them or denying them or covering for them mm-hmm. to the point where I started to erase myself, you know, like who I really am. I, I was just sort of not I didn't value myself, like that little shriveled version of me. I didn't value it. So the way I became more authentic was to start to accept myself um, in terms of maybe having a little bit lower working memory than the average person mm-hmm. um, and having to write things down or keep track of things or maybe not remember things clearly and just accepting that is part of how this machine operates. That's just a fundamental truth of me. And it's not good, bad, or anything. It's just a reality. So to start to see, to start to remove some of the self-judgment, Andrea, and see myself just more objectively and start to love myself emotionally, physically, mentally, and to just show up. So first it was accepting myself that I was that way. And then also relying on the relationships that I've built and my trust in other people to trust that I won't be rejected if people see this in me. Mm -hmm. Or if I say, hey, I've forgotten what it was we talked about. Can you remind me? I'm not going to be, you know, fired or sent away. Exiled. (laughs) Rejected. Right. It it starts as an inside job. And then we slowly gain the confidence to to show all of that to other people. And and to know that I actually can put on that game face when I need to. I'm using it right now as I talk to you. We just Mm -hmm. do this. We sort of sit a little more erect and we speak a little more clearly. And we become this little bit polished version of ourselves. And it doesn't mean I'm being inauthentic. It means I'm using an aspect of my personality that is good for moments like this. Right. It's just if I try to live here all the time, it doesn't leave space for the other things that I am. And that's what I, even 12 years into this, what I'm still really learning on a regular basis to do is to just allow myself to be all of me. Mm Mm-hmm. It sounds like what you were describing in one word might be perfectionism. I think that's one word for it. Yeah. Um, except it was it was a kind of a it, it was perfectionism with an asterisk beside it because you know I'm just not I'm not perfect I'm not capable of maintaining it so it required me to ignore or cover up the places where I wasn't perfect. And I had Mm -hmm. to get to this in order to live like that for any length of time. And for me, I lived like that for, you know, at least a decade. I guess one word for it would be codependent where you 
yeah. overvalue how other people see you mm-hmm. and you discount yourself to the point where what you know doesn't matter. That's how I felt about myself. If no one else knew, then it didn't exist. If I knew something about myself, it didn't matter because I did, I wasn't even real, right? Mm-hmm. And so as I became more real and more valued, valued myself as much as I valued others, then I th- that investment in appearing perfect s- starts to evaporate because what I know matters and I know that's not even true. Mm-hmm. That that persona. That just in what you were describing, I'm like, ugh, I think so many people listening know that place and also know how exhausting it is. Even if someone is listening and you're kind of describing them and and maybe drinking isn't their kind of numbing mechanism of choice, there might be something else that they're doing. Because when you even if you don't know that you're being inauthentic, like your body knows. Do you know what I mean? Like there's still this discomfort where some people describe it as like, I don't know what it is, but why can't I be totally happy? Or there, do you know, it just manifests differently for some people. So thank you for yeah. describing that. I think you're, you're really telling a lot of people's stories. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. With Shopify POS, you can accept credit cards, mobile payments, and every other major payment method, all with low fees and transparent pricing, starting on day one. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com noise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com noise to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com noise noise. What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? I mean, that's what this show is all about, right? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you can do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel has over 16 million subscribers sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Their courses are so convenient and have helped me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's so easy to learn how to order food. That's where I get the most excited to use it at Mexican restaurants or ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while on vacation, etc. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash noise. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash noise, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash noise. Rules and restrictions may apply. You know, this can be for anybody listening who's been either at a job for a really long time or a relationship that they feel like has sort of done its course, (laughs) but you 
had um, a podcast called The Bubble Hour, which you started like way, way early adopter, like back before I think there was even podcasting platforms, maybe. It was so, it was started so long ago. I joined in season two. The we didn't even have TVs it. yet. Like, <laughs> yeah, we didn't, we couldn't see each other. In fact, it was started on one of the few podcasting platforms then that we actually phoned in using landlines. And then one person was at a computer where they kind of controlled like a, almost like a studio board. And it was very much like the call. If you see those old Frasier reruns, you know, where like phone in radio shows, it was kind of like that. Um, So that's how long ago it was. Oh my gosh. But you, you did it for 10 years and then you decided to end it. How did you know it was time? And then what did you do during that final season? So this is, this is a big thing that I think applies to a lot of us that are creative or that do projects or even whatever we do in our life is that we think of, we put so much into how we want it to be that we don't think about how it's going to end or how we're going to extricate or how mm-hmm. we're going to know when mm-hmm. it's run its course. And I I heard this quote one time uh, and it stayed with me about, uh, it was about how crim- the reason criminals get caught is because they think about the crime, but they don't plan out the aftermath as detailed as they plan out the crime. So, mm-hmm. you know, you you might plan how you're going to rob a bank or, I don't know, you know, do something dastardly, but forget how you're going to get away and what lies you're going to tell afterwards and where you're going to put the money. Like you, you think so much about the thing, you don't think about the aftermath. And that idea always stayed with me because I don't have criminal tendencies, but I, I mm-hmm. transferred that to other things. So in doing this podcast, I thought I need to think about the end. I, at one point was when I started, I was one of several co-hosts, but eventually I took over the show on my own. And I always thought I would just do it for a year or two. And I thought I would go maybe to a nice round number of episodes, but the years just kept going. And I kept doing this gut check. Like, no, it still feels good. It still feels good. But in my mind, I knew this show was so beloved and meant so much to so many people mm-hmm. that I didn't want it to just fade away. There's a, now they call it pod fade. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> have you heard that expression? I haven't. I haven't, but I understand it. Yeah. So a lot of people get into podcasting because it's fun and it's easy and we're excited about a topic. And then you find out how much work it actually exactly. is. Exactly. That's why I knew what you're talking about. Most people do like six episodes and then yeah. they, you know, forget to go back or whatever. And that's that's what pod fate is. And I didn't want to just lose enthusiasm and slowly stop producing or just dribble it out. I felt like I wanted to wrap it up with a bow. And I wanted to make the end meaningful in a way that that the show deserved because podcasts like yours and like mine, they're only partly about the person making it. They're more about the people listening and the guests that come on because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, we're just talking to ourselves right. in, in a room at home. So I just felt like I owed it to everybody to do something beautiful with this. What I ended up doing was I took all 350 episodes. So that's hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio, ran it through automated transcription processes, put all those transcriptions into a database, which then could be searched by word. I built a documentary about this show. And because I had everything so organized, I was able to then find clips because I'm, I would think like, oh, what was that? What was that great story that Andrea Owen told about vanilla extract or cough syrup mm-hmm. in her pantry? Because you, know, you remember. <laughs> and I, and I would think like, how can I find that? Or, oh, there was this great story someone told about 
about blacking out and like waking up and slipping on um, all the snack wrappers on the floor when they got up in the morning. Mm. So I would go and find all those stories and pulled out the clips and then built this documentary. So it's a 10 hour, 10 part documentary about the decade of the bubble hour. And it goes right back to the beginning and just follows the arc of the hosts and the guests and the show and all of the changes in technology over the past decade because here we are, you know, a decade later, yeah. everybody's got Zoom. We can we can see each other. We've mm-hmm. all got like nice mics and headsets and things have just changed so much. That was how I pulled together that final season. And then I thought, well, I took 350 hours of content down to 10 hours. <laughs> what about all this great stuff on the cutting room floor? And so then from the remainder of that, I then wrote a book um, just sharing. It's kind of like a, a daily reading or an inspirational reading, but it's part journal and part workbook and and part reading using you know some of the other great content that was left behind and some of the stories and lessons that are part of that show. And that's the Take Good Care book, right? Yeah, it's called Take Good Care, which was my sign-off phrase at the end of the show. And yeah, it was just one more way to sort of give people a, a way to remember that season of of time that was the bubble hour and with so many people participating in it in different ways and finding it still to this day. I mean, people find it now and they'll go right back to the beginning and listen to all of those episodes. And so it's just sort of one more way to, to, you know, give you a hug as I'm Mm -hmm. leaving the space. (laughs) I I love, I mean, for, for a while, yours was the only one. Yours was the only podcast that and I don't even know if we called them podcasts back then. I, I remember telling, you know, because when, when I came out, I, I had a year of sobriety before I went public with it. So that would have been 2012. And a lot of people reached out to me privately who were struggling with their own relationship with alcohol. And yours was the only one I would send them to because at the time it was the only one. Now there's a million. If you want to go watch the documentary, how do they do that? It's right on the podcast app. So it's okay. It's- audio only. So it's 10 episodes of audio. And yeah, they can find the bubble hour and listen to season 10. So it's all right there. Okay. So whatever whatever podcast app you're listening to, look for the bubble hour and they they can find it there. Okay. Yes. I love that. Or yeah. listen to all 350 episodes. Yes, you could do that too. Um, the, you could go to bu- thebubblehour.com and I've got, you know, the season 10 is right at the top just to make it easy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another another way. Another another avenue. Well, and and one of the things I love about Take Good Care is that you you kind of open the book by talking about it. And the, so the format is that you ask people to read each section three times, which I love this advice for any self-help book, because I know that there's people listening <laughs> who might listen to self-help books and just like have it in their ears when they're working out or grocery shopping or driving, which is great. I think that in and of itself can be great. And it might like embed little nuggets in, in your mind, but you're, you're, what you're talking about is much more intentional. So can you tell us about that? So this concept, you know, I feel like I have got so many self-help books that I have bought, read the first hundred pages and then Same. put them on the shelf. <laughs> I have read yours front to back. Love Thank them. You. You're the exception for me. There's there's a lot that I I I'm I want to be able to dip in. I want quick fixes. And so this book is set up for you to read. You don't have to read it front to back, open it to whatever page and read the reading that is on that page. 
Um, and then there's three little boxes, one, two, three. So when you're done, you tick one of those boxes that says, I've read this page. And at the end of that reading, there's a question. And again, three little boxes. And um, so you answer the question and you note the date. And then you go on and go on about your day. Next time you come back to the book, do the same thing. And so the idea is that for each of these readings, each of these, and each reading is kind of an idea or a story, just to kind of spark a question for yourself. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that over time, this goes from being a book about conversations I've had with other people as a podcaster to being a conversation with yourself. And you can see how your responses change over time as you come back and read the same reading again. So I I noticed for myself that I would experience an interview three times with the guest. First, when I conducted the interview, and then when I edited it, I would hear things again and think, oh, I don't remember this part of the conversation. Yeah. This is hitting me differently. And then down the road, I would listen to it you know, as a podcast, I might go back and hear it again as a listener and think I'm hearing something else again. And that's because as we change, we things land differently. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things that totally blow our minds become ho-hum after we've lived with them for a while. And I think it's nice to note note that Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Sometimes we just read something and think, I don't know, this doesn't mean anything to me today which is fine to note. And six months down the road, you might think, oh my God, this is so perfect for what I'm going through right now or for what I'm trying to do with my life right now. So this is, I think, what we want to try to capture is not just the beauty of these lessons and ideas and conversations, but more the shifts within ourselves over time. And tell the listeners how you actually came to that way of doing this, the, the listening three times that you talk about in the book. Well, I same thing. I, I I was kind of basing it on my own experience and that I, I would see these shifts in myself as I re-experienced the same interview. Mm-hmm. And years ago I had I had seen a book that had these three little boxes at the top for re-experiencing the same reading three times. But I really liked that idea. But I also thought it's so important that we leave space for our own response. And yeah, so I just really wanted this book to become a keepsake for ourselves because I'm terrible at journaling. I don't know about you. I'm terrible at that, but I can write a sentence. I can make a note. Yeah. And also because this isn't super linear or dated, if it if it stays with you for you know a decade before you get through the whole thing three times, that's fine too. It just mm-hmm. sort of becomes a companion book that's not super demanding or um, or complicated. Yeah, it's just it's just sort of a a friend on your nightstand. Well, and I like too that the readings aren't 25, 30 pages each. They're they're easily digestible and just manageable. Which is which is a lot of times what people need when they're in pain or just even trying to change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like we don't need to have a whole a, a whole textbook of what's mm-hmm. wrong with us. Right. Sometimes we just need little sparks. Yes. Or really, you know what we need? We need a variety of things. So I think this sort of fits into the like appetizers, snacks <laughs> part of the menu. 350 episodes. And I know that many of those conversations were with experts who kind of came at the conversation with their expert hat hat on versus their story. But you have heard of, you've heard many, many, many stories. I'm assuming mostly from, from women, people who identify as women. 
Is there a common thread that you saw? I know you talked about your experience of feeling inauthentic, but are there any other common threads that you saw throughout of hearing these women's stories over and over again? I think this is helpful for people who are or are not in in recovery. It's just, it's hard to be a human, right? Can you talk to us about that? I think probably the biggest thing that I would say as a general concept is that people, almost everyone was taken by surprise to Mm -hmm. find themselves in this point of being in need of a big change in their life. Like I think mm-hmm. everyone seemed every gosh, I, I'm trying to think of if there was anyone who said, you know, I knew this was happening and I was fine with it. I think everyone was trying to cope and thought they were coping and was kind of taken by surprise to realize, oh, my coping has gone awry. Right. <laughs> this is I don't have control of this anymore. Like I thought. Yeah. I did. Exactly. And Coping is meant for short term, right? Coping is like sprinting. You can't run a marathon at sprint pace. You have to, coping is for short term. So I think it was sort of people that had come to rely on living a certain way and thought they had it figured out. I think people in general are very surprised when they realize this isn't working. And I think that's transferable in so many ways because it's confusing, like, because things do work at first. That's why we do them over time when that just becomes too much to bear. And whether that is coping through, you know, disordered eating or the types of relationships we have or the way we conduct ourselves in our relationships, you know, over time, that just, it just does stops working. And I think that's the, that moment of surprise. And then of, becoming clear with ourselves when we, the surprise is there because we're sort of in denial. We're willfully in denial of what we're doing. And this probably relates to what I was saying about being a perfectionist because I, because I could ignore the imperfect parts as long as no one else saw them. That was denial, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's overcoming that denial, first of all, which we maybe might say acceptance would be the word, accepting that this is a problem, and then becoming really pragmatic about, okay, what do I need to do? What needs to happen now? That's sort of inviting in that part of ourself that's that manager that's good at solving problems, but also doing it from not a Band-Aid coping place, but okay, we need to make some big life shifts here, and how's this going to happen? The other thing I heard consistently, this isn't part of everyone's story, but when I first started hearing it, I always thought it was one of those anecdotal, you know, um, sort of fairy tale, cautionary tales, but it turned out to be quite true. And that was that when people relapsed or if people thought, I think I'm okay, I can probably drink again, um, they discovered pretty quickly that they couldn't. You know, one of the cliches that you might hear about a person who uses a program like AA, which has a lot of sort of slogans and cliches. Mm-hmm. Often they'll say the the disease does push-ups, which yeah. means even though you might have been abstinence from your behavior or substance of choice. It's still staying in shape. It, yeah, it's still staying there. So it's like you've had a brain change, like the, re, the, the wires in your brain. Your pleasure reward circuitry has been altered permanently. Mm-hmm. And so you typically can't go back to that behavior very quickly escalates. Like I think for most people, they've said it was like a shockingly fast amount of time where even though they might have had years of abstinence, if they did start drinking again, within weeks, they were up to and beyond what they were drinking at the Oof. time when they quit. And I, I heard that enough to where I realized that, you know, there had to be some truth to that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think 
that is something that is probably quite true for a lot of process addictions as well, that we, you know, we just sort of can't go back to that. It's just easier. None is easier than some is what mm-hmm. I like to say. And, um, and so that, that was something that I was surprised at because I really, I, I wasn't sure it was true when I first got into recovery and heard it. I thought, surely. Well, we know. like to think we're the exceptions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I had this fantasy that I was going to fix myself <laughs> and tinker with my head and then maybe be able to be what Just I thought be was on normal. your way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and really what I tinkered with was my thinking because what I realized is alcohol is addictive mm-hmm. and so what we think of as normal drinkers, we think people who can drink without becoming addicted are normal, but that's actually the abnormal relationship with alcohol. It's an mm-hmm. addictive substance. I got addicted. That's what you should expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I had to had to rephrase what I decided was normal. That's so interesting. A couple of things that jumped out at me that I wanted to just sort of underscore. Um, you said the term process addiction, and, and I, I use it a lot. And I'm wondering if anybody's like, I'm not even sure what that is. So process addiction is is things that we that are not actual something that you consume, you know, like drugs or alcohol. And there's still some debate whether food is an actual addiction. That's another conversation for another time. But that would be something we consume. Process is things like codependency, love addiction, perfectionism. Um, what are some others that I'm not thinking of? I think gambling. Gambling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think it's almost like a, a dopamine um, a, mm-hmm. addiction, really. It's that dopamine cycle of anticipation and the feeling we get from doing certain things. And we can we can become quite addicted to that. Slight side tangent. I'm almost done writing my memoir. I, one of the things that I realized writing about one very long dysfunctional relationship, and I wrote about this and I said, it was the pattern that I trusted 1,000 times more than I trusted my partner. I trusted that because we had these really high highs and really low lows and I was severely codependent and also in this love addicted cycle with him and we were trauma bonded. So it was like, I trusted that if we were in a low where we were fighting or we were cheating on each other, where it was just terrible, I knew what was around the corner. And that's why I stayed for so long. And I think that that in and of itself can be its own addiction and recovery is something that you need. Cause like you were saying, like you have to change your brain chemistry. So I think about that and the hair stands up on the back of my neck. I first gave AG1 a try because I was feeling low energy and sluggish and coffee just wasn't giving me what I needed. Especially in these winter months, I struggle with pep in my step. And since drinking AG1, I felt more energized and focused. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. Because aging is a part of life that we all have to deal with, but I don't think it should prevent me from doing the things I love, like going on long hikes with my dog. I want to do the things that matter to me for as long as possible, which is why I drink AG1 every morning to support my brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm laying the groundwork for long-term health. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process so you know it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to have them as a longtime partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com noise. That's drinkag1.com noise. Check it out. 
Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Recovery advocacy. So if anyone's listening and they're in recovery, they already know this, but for some of you who are not, you have probably seen it, that recovery has gone mainstream. And people post about their recovery. There's so many accounts out there now on social media. And I'm curious what your opinion is as to what are the pros and cons of this place that we're in right now, just of complete, what what looks like openness. Yeah. Wow. Have we ever come a long way in a short amount of time? Because I think we've gone from where it was considered to be something that had to be hidden and secret Uh because um, you were protecting yourself. You were protecting a secret that would harm you socially, presumably. Even in 2012, when I came out, it was a big deal. I was nervous and had to like have my friends behind me. Right. And I think too, that because for so long it had been that way, it had been something that was handled through uh, in private. And, uh, and I think our attitudes towards mental illness and neurodiversity and everything else was the same at this time. That's, that's mm-hmm. you, you, you keep these things private. You deal with them on your own and you don't talk about them with other people. Why? Because it makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> Why are they uncomfortable? Because no one no. ever talks about it, so they don't know and how to do it. And there's shame around it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's shame. For a lot of us that have been doing this sort of advocacy stuff over the last decade, our whole goal was to take away some of that shame and stigma mm-hmm. so that people maybe would, for me, stigma and shame was a barrier that I had to overcome in order to quit. I didn't want to quit drinking because I didn't want to be someone who had to quit drinking because yeah. that meant I was bad, that I had failed. and when we start to see it more as a life choice or a life option or a health option or something that's the natural progression of mm-hmm. dabbling in addictive substances, then uh, we are inviting people to enter into recovery earlier in the trajectory, which improves their um, chances of success, right? Improves their outcomes, recovery outcomes. That's the whole reason why we've been doing this. And yes. we've gone from this where people would like, in the dark slouch secretly into the basements and only wouldn't even create a social media profile with their full name because they Mm -hmm. were so indoctrinated by the idea of anonymity. Now we've gone full circle where, you know, people are recovering out loud from day one. There's good and bad in both of that. But I think we sort of, I I hope that we can kind of, the, the pendulum has gone from one complete extreme to another. And my hope is that we can sort of find our way back a little bit more into the middle because 
it's great that we're talking about things, but I, I really think that there's a, a time where we need a bit of nurturing. The, the pros of recovering out loud is that we, we find connection and we find information and we are breaking down the stigma and shame. But at the same time, those early days of, re- of recovery and of change, whether it's addiction related or a processing change or some other big thing that we're doing differently that we want to nurture and protect for a while. I think if we're doing all of that out loud too soon, I think we're really vulnerable to outside forces and to things that we don't expect. The internet isn't always a friendly place. And also um, sometimes our fellow travelers on this path aren't always in in their most healthy place in their life either. And also not everyone communicates well through the written word. Mm -hmm. So these things can come together where we can be really feeling attacked or criticized or confused or misdirected. And I think that's one of the vulnerabilities of recovering out loud from day one. I know I started my blog on day one. I started it anonymously and that was good for me. That was, it allowed me to sort of write about what I was going through consider feedback and comments and advice that other people had. But it held it just far enough off away from me that I could um, not feel super vulnerable to it. I mm-hmm. could consider it. The downside of that was that I didn't have the accountability of yeah. being uh, myself to anyone. So I had to find ways to to build that in. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting time. And the other thing I think we're starting to see happen is that it's hard to tell who knows what they're talking about and who right, doesn't. Who's so there's, yeah. yeah, and and I'm not an expert, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't say this as an expert, and I don't. I really try not to give expert-sounding advice. I consider myself kind of a an aggregator of other people's stories, and and my ability is in communicating the lessons, the collective lessons that we learn together. I try to come from that place, which means I avoid, you know, making diagnosis or suggesting treatment or anything to people. But not everyone is doing that. A lot of people are pretty confident that what they're saying is right and true and they're putting it out there. And it's, I think it's hard to sift through what, what's really useful and what isn't. So it's an interesting time. In one way, I'm glad. I feel like it's just a big Mardi Gras of information Mm -hmm. and recovering out loud. But at the same time, I'm also, there's, there's times where I see things and I, I just worry for people that they're putting too much too soon. Yeah. What's your take on it? What what have you learned about the it? The same. Like you know, I remember when I first decided to get sober and one of the people who was instrumental in that is one of my dear friends, Courtney Webster. I'm pretty sure she's been on the bubble hour before. She sure has. Yeah. She has. Good. Okay. And she had, I don't know, maybe just under a decade at that point and of sobriety and I I wanted I felt the call to talk about it publicly and I had I had been blogging for a few years there but I had I had just launched your kickass life maybe a year before and I mean it was starting to build a community around that and her advice and she was very firm about it and she said please consider giving it a year like this first year of your own sobriety and recovery is precious like think of it as like your baby and it's just for you because as soon as you start talking about it, you're going to shift over into a bit of an expert mode or a coach mode and like, oh, you know, and, and like answering questions for people. And and I know that my situation was slightly unique 
because of what I do for a living. But I think that this is good advice for a lot of people, you know, even just like posting about it on social media. And I've, I've had, I've had some people who, you know, who get sober that I know, and they immediately want to start coaching about it. And because right now it's, it's pretty lucrative, you know, like Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's a hot topic. And Mm -hmm. I always get a little nervous. I feel like a, like a pain in my stomach where I'm like, Hey, this needs to be about you. It needs to solely be about you. You need to be selfish about your own recovery because I, I think the thing that we don't realize, and I don't know if this was your experience, but I, it definitely was mine. And I think it's the experience of many is that stopping whatever it is, the behavior that you don't want to be doing typically is the easy part. Like initially, whether it's like stopping drinking or if you get out of a, of a toxic relationship and, you know, decide not to date, you delete all the dating apps and you decide you're going to be single and maybe even celibate for a while. Like that's fun initially and fine and can be exhilarating. And in and, and Alcoholics Anonymous, they call that the pink cloud where it's like the first 90 days you're like flying high. You're like, woohoo, I feel better physically, mentally, but it's the staying <laughs> sober. Yeah. Like when shit hits the fan or there's a freaking pandemic or you have this and eggs cost too much. Like when life gets hard as it will, that's when you really need to employ all of the tools that you have learned. And it is incredibly uncomfortable and you are fragile. You are fragile. And it is, it is not a good time to be held accountable to other people for your, how well you're doing. And like, I, but I do think there's something you said about accountability but that that is different than what I'm talking about. And so, yeah, yeah I kind of went off on a tangent on that, but it makes me nervous. Like it makes me, yeah. makes me a little nervous. And it's, I think it's, it's a both and in most cases. Well, I, I think you can't give away what you don't have. Yeah. And so uh, what you don't have is experience. And mm. the first few years you're experiencing all these firsts in sobriety. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have your, your first wedding that you go to you've got mine your first... was camping like who goes camping right? sober and on a boat sober yeah. that was my all big of first. these things like, what and do I do with we my sort hands? of forget like how how much um our dysfunction is woven into everything we do because yeah. for me as I like what I had to accept about myself is I'm actually quite shy and reserved and I always came across as outgoing and so I would lean on alcohol I would draw I would be so drawn to alcohol centered activities because that was, I knew how to do that. That was Mm -hmm. my crutch. I didn't get drunk in front of other people. I always waited to get drunk until I was home alone and almost ready for bed. But drinking was part of everything. And so it was shocking to me throughout that first year, how everything was somehow tied into alcohol because alcohol was a big part of my entire life. Going to the grocery store. I mean, you think you you don't think that that's going to be an issue, but guess what? Like mm-hmm. there's alcohol there. There's there's alcohol um related products there, you know? They make it very um, pretty too. That's something I didn't notice until I got sober how attractive they make it. Yeah. At yeah. least they do in the so, states. I don't know if it's the same in Canada. Yeah, I I think it it differs differs regionally, but definitely it it's there. Just there's so many things that you're encountering in that first year and realizing like, oh, okay, so the first few days are hard because physically you're getting off of alcohol, but then then you've, the, you're confronted continuously with all of these surprising ways that you were leaning on it that you now have to navigate without. So I agree with you. I think the first year or two 
really are all about learning and nurturing yourself. And the internet's a great tool. There are private groups to recover in that offer accountability and you can be yourself and you can Mm -hmm. post about it and be creative and write about it. There are ways to engage anonymously, but I I really think that in order to give something away, we have to first really kind of have it locked in with ourselves. Yeah. I never felt that draw to be a recovery coach because I just somehow instinctively, I just felt like I I, I cannot be that person for other people in that way. I just don't have the right makeup for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Takes <laughs> but, a certain kind of person. Yes. And here's here's what I found, though, as a person who was recovering out loud on the podcast. And over time, you know, I added my name and my picture and I slowly came out sort of in little bits. What I found was happening was that people would write to me or approach me and I would spend all this time talking to them about how great it was to be sober and how excited I was for them that they were making this change. And, and you know, I, I didn't understand at the time that not everyone who approaches you is actually ready. They might be information gathering. They might be mm-hmm. in an earlier stage. They're not at the action stage of change. They're at the contemplation preparation stage. And so if I reached out to that person again or followed up with them and they said, oh, yeah, actually, you know what? I'm still drinking. I decided I don't really want to quit. And I would be so devastated yeah, by that. wanted it more than they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would just... and. And I took it as it felt like rejection. And then I would have this huge vulnerability hangover that, oh my God, I told them all about my recovery. And I like was so like honest and open. I gave them all this time. I would feel resentful that mm-hmm. they sort of wasted my time and which they weren't. I mean, it's not a waste of time. They were tucking that conversation away maybe for later use. Maybe that was planting seeds, but. I was having all this negative feeling around it. And here's what I learned as I kind of grew in this role was that the reason that I was feeling that rejection when people didn't go forward in recovery was because I was also feeling um, some satisfaction and some reward, some praise from people mm, who mm-hmm. did take my advice. Yeah. And I realized that I had to detach myself from everyone else's outcomes, no matter what it was. I had to stop internalizing when people would write and say, you're the reason I'm sober or you're, you know, you did this for me. And, and I would think, oh, that's so nice. Oh my gosh, I feel so important and special and appreciated. And I had to start saying, I'm so glad you can use this tool I'm providing you are getting yourself sober. Exactly. And I had to sort of right-size myself. And that took a certain amount of, I guess, maturity in where Mm -hmm. I was at and insight. And I think that that was a game changer for me, figuring that out. That allowed me to be even, I think, stronger as a resource for other people. But the point being, I couldn't have done that on day one, you know, or day 100. Yeah, I I agree. I agree with all of that. I always want to ask people before we close up, is there anything that you want to circle back to that we've talked about, or maybe that I forgot to ask you, whether it's in regard to just recovering from hard life things or or quitting drinking or your book, Take Good Care, that, that you didn't mention that you want to make sure that you say it in order to feel complete? I think a lot of people are questioning their relationship with alcohol because yes. the news 
surprisingly, Canada does not make global news very often. But recently, uh, we did because our country put out a, a, a new decision that they were considering warning labels on alcohol and that two drinks a week was the safe guidelines, but none is even better. Mm-hmm. We're getting to this place where people are reconsidering their relationship with alcohol in general. I think as with all things, we're, we've become a very proactive society and I love that. Yeah. And that we're, we're getting past this idea of we have to wait until things go off the rails before we make a change. We can just make a change. We do this with smoking, you know, mm-hmm. we know smoking's not good Seat for belts, us. So yeah. we just don't. We wear sunscreen. And I think we're kind of getting to the same place with alcohol where we're realizing, you know, this isn't good for us. But also we're getting to that same place with, I think, anything that we're realizing can be addictive, whether it's our screen time or um, some of these other process addictions that we've talked about. So I love that we're being really proactive about things. And I love that we can borrow lessons from one another. So I'm really trying to get to this place in my work where I'm not just talking about alcohol, because at this point in my sobriety, the work that I do on myself is very little about alcohol. Avoiding it day to day is pretty easy. It's more about working on staying grounded and authentic and in the right place in my mind. And I, so I think we can borrow these lessons from each other in, in terms of considering where we're at and being aware, I guess, of when we're coping. I thought that would be my main takeaway for yes. people is just what are you using to cope right now? And are you, are you overusing it? Is it taking on too big of a place in your life? And what could you borrow from other forms of recovery that might be useful for you in making a transition and sort of pulling back your power and dealing with that underlying issue? Are you overusing it? And are you over it? Yeah. <laughs> in your overuse. Yeah, because yeah. sometimes we are and we think, how do I get myself out of this? Like, you know, now I've become the person that does X, Y, Z. I don't know whether you're like volunteering too much at your kid's school or mm-hmm. um, being the person in your family that's the go-to person or being the caregiver for a parent or, you know, do you feel like you've gotten yourself stuck into something you don't want to do? Often people pleasing it is behind that, right? Because yep. we mm-hmm. we want to be like, so we say yes to things. And yep. Yeah. So how can you, how can you not just get yourself out of that? Cause sometimes we just have big blow ups because we're sort of unhappy and feel stuck. And then we end up in a few months later, right back in a similar position because our, we haven't changed our patterns. So definitely ongoing work. It's a lifetime of work. Jean and I are here to. <laughs> to tell you that is absolutely true. And I want to, I mentioned it in the intro and I want to remind everybody that Jean is nice enough to give away a copy of her newest book, Take Good Care, Recovery Readings Inspired by the Bubble Hour podcast. All you need to do is go over to her Instagram that's uh, at Jean McCarthy underscore rights. We'll put a link to that in the episode description you'll see the the post there that where she talked about this episode. And then just tell us what was your biggest takeaway from, from the episode, whether it's a personal anecdote from your own life or a lesson that you're giving away. I'm always so grateful to my listeners for their time. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Jean, so much for being here again. And everyone, I just want you to remember that it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. 
Hey, did you know there's free secret podcast episodes waiting for you that are not part of my regular podcast feed? Yes. AndreaOwen.com slash free. And you just sign up. You get a link sent to you. It's very secret. It's like a secret club. We don't have a secret handshake. Don't worry about that. But it's these motivating podcast episodes that I made for you. They're under 20 minutes each. There's three of them. They're for wherever you are in your life. So head on over there and grab them. They range from really supporting you and seeing you where you are and being compassionate all the way to giving you a giant kick in your ass and telling you how amazing and gorgeous and phenomenal you are. So andreaowen.com slash free and get your hands on that free podcast feed. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.